Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word church, but I know for me, the word church meant a lot of different things at different points and times in my life. When I was growing up, I mean, the church kind of became synonymous to me as kind of boring, irrelevant. It was kind of a place that I looked forward to going to because after services, we would gather downstairs for donuts and cookies and Kool-Aid, and that was the most exciting aspect of church for me. I don't know about you or what comes to mind for you when you kind of hear the word church, but I think for a lot of us, it's more maybe of an emotion than more of a thought. But my hunch is, is that when people hear the word church, and and it just seems that way more and more in our culture as we are kind of getting more and more unchurched as a culture. But my hunch is, is that when a lot of people hear the word church, it's usually a very, very far cry from what believers in the very first century thought of. For people in the first century and really from the beginning, the church was a movement. It wasn't a building, there weren't any Bibles, there was no Sunday school, there were no committees, there were none of these things. There were no budgets, no bands, no buildings, no banners, or anything else that started with the letter B. There were no staff, there were no hierarchies, there were no denominations. From the very, very beginning, the church began as a movement. And it began as a movement around a very, very simple, yet very powerful, very profound message. And unfortunately, most churches only talk about this once a year, if at all. The very first church was launched around a significant event in history. And we call this event Easter because it was all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that unified, that galvanized first century believers around this very simple yet very powerful idea that Jesus died and three days later he was resurrected from the dead. And that was God's validation and our proof that everything Jesus claimed about himself and his message was absolutely 100% true. As a matter of fact, if someone asked me, how do you, Pastor Jeff, know that Christianity is the one true religion? I mean, what is it that makes Christianity different from every other religion known to mankind? And my response is simple, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You had this man, Jesus Christ, who among other things claimed in the word to be co-equal, co-eternal with God, and that he would prove who he was. He would validate who he was by rising from the dead to eternal life. Do you realize no other religion can, ever has, or ever will make that same claim? That claim is unique to Christianity, and it was this very simple yet very powerful, very profound message and the testimony by eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection that basically gave birth, it kind of launched, it propelled the very first local church of the first century. 
Now, the other aspect to this very simple yet powerful message was that it also evoked a very, very strong response and reaction. See, in some people, this message evoked a response, a reaction of disbelief, whereas other people, it evoked a reaction, a response of belief, and the same is true today. So from the very beginning there in the book of Acts, the church began as a movement. And believe it or not, the church today, many centuries later, is still moving because someone very wise one time told me, movements move. Let me tell you why this is important and what we need to learn from this. See, in the Greek New Testament, this is where kind of most of our translations, if you've got, doesn't matter if you've got the King James, the New King James, the NIV, NASB, NLT, whatever Bible translation you have, that has been translated literally from the Greek New Testament. And in the New Testament is this Greek word, ecclesia. And so whenever you see that word, church, in the Greek New Testament, it was ecclesia. And, and it means an assembly, a gathering, a congregation. Now, the reason this is so important is because when Jesus launched the church, he launched it as an assembly, a gathering of people coming together in his name, a gathering around one very simple idea with a simple mission and a simple focus. The very first church there in the book of Acts launched and was birthed by a very simple message that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, proving he was God among us with a simple message, sharing that message with others with a simple focus, disciples, disciple people to understand and obey everything Jesus taught. That was the mission, the focus, the purpose of the very first church. Now, if you know anything about church history at all, you would know that around 300 AD, there kind of came this shift, kind of a misunderstanding, a rethinking in the mission, the focus, the purpose of the word church. Again, the Greek word ecclesia cannot be any clearer. You can go back to any Greek dictionary. They all define it the same way. An assembly, a gathering, a congregating of people, a congregation. So in about 300 AD, that little Greek word ecclesia was transitioned into kind of a different word. And I want to show you this word. It's actually a German word. I don't speak German. Um, and I don't know exactly how to pronounce it in German, but you'll see the English derivative of this word is Kirsch, or some version of that. So this German word Kirsch, that's where we get our English word church. Now that German word Kirsch there literally meant, in about 300 AD, it meant the Lord's house. It became a word that kind of described a building. It kind of began to describe a ritual place, a temple. And you know what? It didn't even have to be Christian. The word Kirsch 
just meant a people who shared a similar faith, gathering together, coalescing around that same belief and faith, whatever that may be. So what happened in just a matter of 300 years from the time of Jesus' resurrection and the launching of the very first ecclesia, the very first church, this assembly, this gathering of people, this congregation, this movement coming together around a very simple yet very powerful, profound message, mission, and focus. Jesus is alive. Tell others and obey what he says began to shift and to morph into Kirsch, the Lord's house, a building, a ritual, a holy place. Now, the reason to me that this is so important is because this transition of wording from Ecclesia to Kirsch resulted in some terrible, terrible theology, religion, and practice. There in 300 AD, you have this transition taking place from a movement that moves around a very simple message, Jesus is risen, and it has morphed into the Lord's house, a building, a gathering of people to a holy, holy building, an assembly to a ritual. In fact, what was happening there was really kind of a throwback to the Old Testament idea of a temple being there in Israel. And the people of God kind of gathered in this temple and God dwelled in the temple. So there in 300 AD, the ecclesia began moving toward a curse. The movement became more about the building. The gathering of people became more about the holy place they gathered in. This horrible, horrible linguistic transition from Ecclesia to curse resulted in some terrible, terrible theology and church practice. It wasn't long after that. The church was now located and identified as a building. Not people, a building. The church was no longer a movement. It was now about monuments. The church was not the people. It all became about the place they gathered in. Some of you share a little bit of history with me. You'll remember one time there was a church I was a part of that became more about a columbarium than anything else. And it split the church. This horrible, horrible Linguistic translation from Ecclesia to curse, again, it just resulted in some very, very terrible, horrible theology. And again, if you know anything about church history, whoever controlled the building controlled the church. Some of you maybe kind of can Google some of the Presbyterian churches right now that are in a royal battle with their denominations over property. They want to split away from the Presbyterian church. They want to take the property with them. 
the denomination says, no, no, that is ours. That belongs to us. Because see, whoever controlled the building controlled the church. Whoever controlled the building controlled the scripture. Whoever controlled the building and controlled the scripture controlled the people. In some segments of Europe, as some of you may well know, whoever controlled the building, the scripture, and the people also controlled the government. So over time, what kind of began as a gathering, an assembly, a movement of people distributing God's truth concerning the person, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden it just kind of morphed into a very insider-focused, hierarchical ritual, and in some cases, pagan, immoral, destructive, unethical movement that had no resemblance of what had been launched there is the very first church in the beginning of the book of Acts. When the early church began moving and shifting away from Ecclesia to Kirsch, from the beginning of being the Lord's people to the Lord's place, from an assembly of people to an assembly place. You know what happened? It began losing that very simple yet very profound, very powerful message. And unfortunately, that same idea that began there in 300 AD is still reflected and portrayed in the theology and practice of many local churches and denominations today. However, something incredible happened in about the 16th century. In the early 1500s, a guy showed up in England. He was a scholar. His name was William Tyndale. And William Tyndale was a British or an English author and scholar. He was a linguistics author, specifically. And he decided it was time. It was beyond time for the average person to read and to listen to a translation of the scriptures that they themselves could read and understand. Because see, in that day and age, you went to the church and you listened to the priest read and then interpret the scripture. Because the average person either couldn't read or didn't understand. So no one had access to the scriptures other than the priests. And again, if you controlled the Bible, you controlled the truth, you controlled the church, you controlled the uh, people. And William Tyndale had gotten fed up with this and said, enough is enough. And he began to translate it. He's the first person to do that. And so he began to translate from the original Hebrew and Greek text into English. And the church leaders, guess what? Weren't happy about this. Tyndale became an outlaw so much so that he ended up having to leave England. And he fled to Germany where he continued to do his translation work. I had a bounty on his head. Thanks to Gutenberg who lived about 100 years before Tyndale. He began to print copies of the New Testament specifically and smuggled them back into England. Suddenly, for the first time in history, the average person had a copy. Not a handwritten 
copy. Those were extremely expensive and very, very rare. No one could afford those. Suddenly, the people of England, even though it was expensive, they could hold the entire New Testament, in some cases, the entire Bible in their hands in a language they could read and understand. Tyndale was eventually betrayed by a friend, brought back to England, tried and convicted as a heretic, and they hanged him. They burned his body, and then they discarded him as a heretic, as an enemy of the church. By then it was too late, because now the word was out. English-speaking people had a copy of the scripture and the church, the institutional church, the church that thought in terms of a location, a place, a building, and control of the people really began to lose its power and control over the people because they could actually read and understand the scriptures for themselves. During his trial, Tyndale made this statement. It's one of his most famous statements. And he said, if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And he spoke that to the religious leaders of his day. He accused them of manipulating and twisting the scriptures, manipulating the people, manipulating the church in order to control the people and to control political policy. And Tyndale went on to say, if it's left up to me, I will make sure, I will see to it that every person holds in their hands and is able to read holy scriptures. Now, one of the things... um, that that drove the religious leaders absolutely crazy is that Tyndale, when he was translating the scriptures, do you realize when he got to that little word, that Greek word, ecclesia, he didn't translate it, church, the German version of that word. In his translation of the New Testament, when he got to that Greek word, ecclesia, he put the word congregation. People, a gathering. It was his attempt to return and to shift the church back to what God meant it to be. And how it started off there in that very first century, a growing multicultural, multi-ethnic, a mission-centered, mission-focused movement of people proclaiming a very simple yet a very profound and powerful message for everyone in the world to hear around one single event in the history of mankind, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, it's interesting to me, the very first day of the church Jesus came to launch is found there in Acts chapter two. Now, a lot of significant 
Noteworthy things happened there in Acts chapter 2. Chief among them was the promise of the Holy Spirit was going to come and to fill, to indwell, and give power to believers, to go forth and to be Jesus' witnesses throughout the world. So when that movement, that moment actually comes, it comes, the scripture says, like this violent, rushing wind, tongues of fire appear, begin resting upon people, and the disciples began to speak in other tongues. And I want you to notice what happens here. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. In other words, the assembly assembled. The gathering gathered The congregation congregated and men from every nation under heaven, a multicultural, multi-ethnic gathering. And as this multi-ethnic, multi-generation of men from every nation under heaven assembled, Peter takes that opportunity and he preaches his very first sermon, beginning there in Acts 2.22, and he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and signs and wonders with God, that God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. There were probably those that had seen that as well. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, you got to understand. See, for you and I, this is thousands and thousands of years old. To the people who were hearing Peter, this happened a couple months ago. It'd be like us hearing this, and this occurred in January, after the first of the year. So Peter is basically recounting, and he's recalling some very, very, very recent history. This is like two months after the crucifixion. So when he says, Jesus the Nazarene, many of the people in that crowd went, I remember him. Yeah. I heard him teach. I saw him dragging that cross down the streets of the Via Della Rosa. I watched him crucified. I actually have a friend who had been healed by that man. I know who you're talking about. This isn't distant history. They're hearing this, and it is very recent history. And continuing there in Acts 2.24, Peter says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So on this very first day of the opening of the church, that Jesus came to give birth to and to launch. Peter preaches that very simple, very profound, yet powerful message regarding 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not an accident. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. The crowd's listening to Peter. And they ask Peter, and they ask the other disciples who were with Peter, brethren, what do we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many others, words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting, encouraging them, saying, be saved from this perverse, wicked evil generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the opening day of the local church. That dynamic, that excitement, that sense of wonder and awe is what Jesus came to unleash in the local church. 3,000 people that day Peter preached joined a movement and they moved. They became part of an assembly that grew and multiplied around one single event in history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why are you talking about this? We can't ever get away from this message. It is simple. We talk about it a lot here. But you and I know, and maybe you've been a part of a church that really has gotten away from this message. And terrible things have happened. Things have gone on in the church that you kind of just are sitting there scratching your head thinking, why is this happening? Why is this occurring? In most cases, it's because they just simply have gotten away from that very simple yet very powerful and profound message. The message that Jesus came to bring, the, the message Peter proclaimed. Acts 2.47 said, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was and is and forever will be the sole mission and priority of the local church to gather, to assemble, to congregate around that one simple yet very powerful, profound message. Jesus Christ has been risen, has risen from the dead and is alive forevermore. Those first century people in that very first church, we're not joining themselves to a building or a denomination or a ritual. As a matter of fact, those concepts wouldn't have even made sense to them because the church then, just as the church should be now, was a multiplying gathering, a growing assembly of people who came around and galvanized and united around a very simple yet a very powerful message and a single event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And 2,000 years later, here we are. Do you know the one thing that connects Christians from every age and culture around the world in the name of Jesus? Do you know what that common denominator is? I'll give you a clue. It's not the way we worship. 
It's not the liturgy or the lack of liturgy. It's not our customs or traditions. It's not even praise cafe. I know for some of you that's insulting. It's not the way we do communion. The one thing that unites us and galvanizes us. The only point of common ground, the only thing that we have in common, if you take every believer from every single culture all over the world throughout the history of mankind, there is only one thing we have in common. It's that we believe Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God who died and was risen from the dead, that his death paid for his atonement satisfied the penalty of sins for the entire world, just as Jesus said it would. It was not about a location. There was no location. The church wasn't for church people because there weren't any church people in the very beginning. And it wasn't about a tradition or a style or a certain way of doing anything because there was none of that. But there was an energy. There was a dynamic. There was a unifying effect. There was momentum. There was a movement and the world would never, ever, ever be the same. Here's what I think is so cool about all of that. Since opening day of the local church, there has always been and forever will be a remnant who understands this. There's always been a group of people, an assembly who understands that this is a movement and a movement moves. This is a dynamic. There is a truth that must spread. This is a message that must touch down in every single region of the world, in every single culture of the world, and every single language of the world. And the great thing is, we have our part to play right here, today, in Mason City, Iowa. And since day one, there have been missionaries, there have been Bible translators, there have been evangelists, there have been Bible smugglers, there have been preachers, and there have been people who have served and people who have taken care of the poor in Jesus' name. I mean, you heard a lot of the things that the church has accomplished in that video. And for every generation, there has always been a remnant, a group of people that said, it's not a location, it's not hierarchy. I will not be controlled. I will not be manipulated. The scripture is for all people. There have always been people like William Tyndale who said, I'm willing to give my life in order to put the scripture, the story of Jesus, the story of the church into the hands of common people so they can read it and say, wow, look what God has done. Look what God has accomplished. Look what God is offering to me. I want to be a part of that. 
There's always been a group that says, we're not going back to the Old Testament ways where we have to approach God through another individual, high priest. There's always been a group of people who have understood from the New Testament that you are now the temple of God. You are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was then available to every single believer who would embrace that very simple yet very powerful and profound message that you are the temple of God, that God now dwells in you. And when we gather in Jesus' name, we become a part of that assembly. We become a part of this movement, this ecclesia. There have always been people who have gotten this, who have understood this. And I hope you're one that gets it, that understands this. I hope we are a church that continues to get this and to understand this and to proclaim this. Because I'll tell you what, we ever lose sight of this simple yet powerful and very profound message of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Turn off the lights, lock the doors, we're done. This is why Jesus came, in part, to give birth to and to launch the church that first day over two centuries ago. It's around that message. It is around that message we gather today. It is around that message we will always gather Do this in remembrance of me. His body was broken, his blood was shed. We know he died. But what is so profound is that he overcame the grave and he is alive today. And the Holy Spirit there and then that filled and indwelled believers is that same Holy Spirit that wants to fill and indwell believers now. That Holy Spirit then that led those believers into all truth is the same Holy Spirit that wants to lead you into all truth. So this morning we gather, not just to remember his death, that is important, but we're also gathering to remember his resurrection from the dead, that he is alive forevermore. That is the one thing that the scriptures call us to in that invitation to salvation. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Not that, not that he died on the cross. Again, that's very, very important. I'm not trying to minimize or downplay that. But the gift of salvation, the offer of salvation is that we believe in our hearts that God raised him from 
the dead. This is an affirmation of that. And it's why we do it. It's why we offer it. Because we all can gather around that one unifying, simple message. Every time I do this, I am remembering that you died for my sins. I'm remembering that you've been raised from the dead to give me eternal life, to give me the Holy Spirit, to empower, to dwell in me, to lead me into all truth, to heal me, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. That's what this is. The gift, the reminder of our salvation. Father, we just thank you. And Lord, I just pray again, as this is a very, very simple message, that Lord, we will never forget the simplicity of this message. That, Lord, we would never feel like we've talked about it enough and it's time to move on to something else. But this becomes the very foundation of who we are, of what you're calling us to do as a church. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you'll just, again, continue to empower, to lead us, God, to continue to proclaim that message of your resurrection from the dead. Father, help us just to continue to keep it simple, to keep it about people and not buildings. And Lord, again, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather around the body, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Lord, we just give thanks that even though your body was broken, your blood was shed, which resulted in your death, death could not hold you that on that third day you raised him from the grave and he overcame death, not just for himself. He overcame death, the power, the penalty of sin for everyone who believes in him, that confesses Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as healer, as forgiver. So this morning, Father, we come we celebrate, we gather, we unify ourselves and this congregation, this assembly, this ecclesia around that simple yet profound idea. You are alive. You are alive in us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.